Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories Web3 Edition. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Manib Ali of Stacks. Manib, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Manib, by way of background, why don't you introduce what is Stacks? And give, give, you've been very early to the space. Why don't you give a little a bit of an overview of your journey to where you are today? Yeah, so Stacks basically brings smart contracts to Bitcoin. Uh, so if you think about Bitcoin, people might be familiar uh, that this is kind of like a money layer for the internet. And then there are other projects like Ethereum uh, that effectively built out smart contract functionality right at the base blockchain layer. And the thesis that we have is that, you know, Bitcoin is actually winning as money. And it would be very interesting to try and make that capital productive, right? So it's like something like, you know, $500 billion worth of capital. So if you bring smart contracts to Bitcoin... Uh, instead of the other way around. Like what Ethereum is saying is that, hey, we have smart contracts and at some point Ethereum might start getting used as money. So in some ways, it's kind of like the opposite approach that you have Bitcoin as money and then you kind of like bring smart contracts to where the money is as, as a separate layer. And Sachs is that that layer uh, of uh, of smart contracts. Awesome. Very excited to, to get into that. But, but before we do, why don't you get a little bit of an overview of how you've navigated the idea maze because you've been working on on this for quite some time, and uh, you've had different ideas uh, along the way. So, why don't you trace us a little bit of the, the journey of the of the company and, and and what you've learned? Yes. So, I think going back, uh, I was a PhD student, and back in like 2013, I was doing my PhD at Princeton in distributed systems when I discovered Bitcoin and was fascinated by it. Right, like it's it's almost like, especially if you work in the field of distributed systems, you see this thing and it just cracks a kind of like a unsolved previous problem. Uh, it opens up doors to like new types of things that can be built. And that got me really, really excited uh, and started kind of like hacking on it. So the idea of building different types of applications or new use cases uh, around the Bitcoin blockchain is as old as you know time, right? Because uh, Satoshi, they were actually involved in some of those ideas, right? So people were talking about Kind of like you know, we, I'll, I'll tell people a little bit about this project called Namecoin. Uh, so it was a new type of an application that is different from Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is very very simple, right? Like Bitcoin, you should think of Bitcoin as all it does is it's trying to be money, and all you can do at the core protocol level, at the base blockchain level, is just transfer money, right? That's really the main operation that that is supported. And uh, if you want to build something else, if you're a developer, if you want to have some other type of functionality, for example, Namecoin had an idea that why don't we uh, register domain names? Uh, so just like, you know, you have on the traditional internet, you have CNN.com, Facebook.com. Uh, how about we do that at the blockchain layer and that'd be much more secure and decentralized and uh, censorship resistant and so on. And, and Namecoin basically... I tried implemented that uh, almost as a merge mine layer with, with Bitcoin. I wouldn't go too deep on the on the technology side, but just to highlight that this idea of other types of applications 
can be implemented using this technology goes all the way back to Satoshi Nakamoto. And, uh, you know, even in the early days of like 2011, 2012, which is a little bit before my time, there were so many other ideas of like what can be done on top of Bitcoin. And that, that's how actually Vitalik, the founder of uh, Ethereum, started his journey as well, right? So not a lot of people know this, but initially Vitalik was proposing uh, smart contracts on top of Bitcoin that can be actually change the Bitcoin code to try and support uh, fully expressive smart contracts, meaning that instead of doing just like these transfer payment type transactions at Bitcoin, developers would be able to basically program anything that they want, which is a drastic change from how Bitcoin is designed. And I think that's the original argument or disagreement uh, that that started between the Bitcoin and the Ethereum community. And I think it's a very fundamental type of a, a computer architecture question that Bitcoin is saying that you don't want to have uh, that much flexibility and ability for developers to program anything at the base blockchain level. Because people on that side of the debate, they, uh, me included, think that that opens up like too many attack vectors that makes your base uh, layer really, really complicated. And, and you want to keep your base layer very simple, right? And Ethereum takes the position that you, uh, these, these smart contracts are very, very powerful. And I think reality is always somewhere in the middle, right? Uh, it is true that the smart contracts are extremely powerful. We have seen that with the uh, kind of like rise of Ethereum, with how many developers and users are kind of like excited about using these applications or are building building on Ethereum. And we have also seen like tons of hacks and problems with these with these smart contracts as well. And but that's the thing that I think most people notice at the uh, at the high level. At a deeper technical level, what's happening is that the Ethereum base layer is becoming more and more complex over time, right? And even the Ethereum developers acknowledge that. Uh, in some recent blog posts, uh, Vitalik was talking about, he was kind of like doing a retro of the past like five, six years of Ethereum and was exactly hitting on the same subject that he still thinks that Ethereum still has this, uh, this decision to make that does it want to be simple at the base layer and be more like Bitcoin? or it wants to be more experimental and more complex and be a smart contract platform. And that fundamental debate is really that Ethereum, is it trying to be money like Bitcoin or is it trying to be a developer platform, like a smart contract developer platform? And there's a tension between the two. One wants you to be durable and simple, which is Bitcoin has clearly picked that lane, right? Bitcoin is saying that it's going to be durable, it's going to be simple and the downside of that is developing on Bitcoin is much, much harder, right? Because you don't have that, that smart contract functionality. And Ethereum is kind of like, you know, it, it has picked different choices. So I think those are kind of like the design trade-offs uh, and they're extremely important. Like if you look at the market size of these things, you know, we, I, we know the markets are a bit down right now, but Bitcoin simply as money just a few months ago was worth like a trillion dollars or Ethereum, as a smart contract platform was worth around 500 billion. And then there are new ones, like things like Solana, Avalanche, and others were basically saying, hey, look, we are a better, faster smart contract platform than Ethereum. And they uh, they, were getting, they were getting a lot of uh, traction as well. So I think that's, that's kind of like a landscape. And it's these are enormous markets, right? Like the market of like what is going to be the uh, reserve currency of the world or what is going to be, what is going to replace gold uh, as an asset uh, that's like at least like a $10 trillion market. 
and uh, what is going to be the next generation cloud really, right? Like it's, you, people can think of this as like decentralized computing. This is what these smart contracts are doing. That's, that's potentially a very, very large market as well. So I think that's, that's what these projects are doing. They're, they're trying to build these things. Yeah, that's a great description. I read recently that there's some critique of Ethereum that perhaps it's caught in the uncanny valley or the messy middle where it's it's not you know as a, a secure durable you know all, all the great attributes that bitcoin has so it's not winning there but it's also not going all in on the developer platform angle in a way that like solana or some of these other programs are and so if it's neither the best of either maybe it it you know gets the worst worst of both yes so i think First of all, I think Ethereum deserves like a ton of credit, right? Like the idea that fully expressive smart contracts would be so useful to developers, like Vitalik and Ethereum pushed that forward, right? I was, I was, I was being a, I think being a computer scientist, sometimes you're trained to look at how things can go wrong, right? Like you're always poking holes in things. And I was very scared of, of this architecture where people are effectively running untrusted code on somebody else's computer, right? If you're running an Ethereum node and I publish a smart contract that you have to run, it is somewhat similar to like someone is forcing you to download software from the internet and just run it on your computer, right? So the the amount of kind of like malicious bad things that can happen, uh, I think there's a, there's a big security attack vector, but over time we've seen that at least the Ethereum virtual machine, like the, the VM that actually runs the code, that has turned out to be pretty rock solid, right? Like there haven't been a lot of exploits where there is an exploit at the VM level and then all sorts of like catastrophic things happen. There have been problems with the programming language solidity uh, that has certain drawbacks and there have been a lot of, lots of like hacks and thefts because of that. But the, the flip side, uh, there, there's always like, you know, here's the power of the technology. Yes, there are potential downsides, but how powerful, powerful this technology is that I've, over the years, I've been completely convinced that smart contracts are just a game changer. Like it's almost like a new type of a computing platform. Uh, it's it's like how we had the jump from like mainframes to desktops. And when we got desktops, like new types of applications emerged. And when we got cloud computing, like again, a new type of applications or, or we got uh, uh, mobile computing, we, we saw a new category of applications. It's like a jump like that, potentially bigger. So these these are like new types of like developer platforms and Ethereum has really pushed that forward. With that said, going, going back to your comment about Ethereum is trying to be two things. It's, there is this meme in the Ethereum community that Ethereum is ultrasound money over there is trying to compete with Bitcoin. And then it's trying to be a, the best kind of like developer platform for smart contracts. So last cycle, like personally, you know, I'm a Bitcoiner, most of my kind of like Crypto holdings are 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 in, are in Bitcoin, uh, outside of kind of like you know my my own project, uh, and the way I looked at it was exactly that that look Bitcoin is better at being money, and some of the newer platforms like Avalanche or Solana, they are going to effectively like rise more right like they they have solved some of the challenges that Ethereum is like a bigger ship now right so it's a it's harder to maneuver that like some of the some of the features that Ethereum has been wanting to ship for a while, like projects like Avalanche or Near, they're, they're, they already have those in production, right? And, and they're already scaling, they're already faster. And so if you had, if your portfolio looked like Bitcoin as money, and then a basket of like Solana, Avalanche, Near, pick a, a bunch of other new L1s, uh, you would have actually outperformed Ethereum, 
because, because the basket of the L1s is gaining market share. And you can pick any metric that you want. Like it could be number of users, developers, it could be transactions, it could be market share. That basket is actually gaining market share on Ethereum in every metric you can, you can look at, right? Because they're just trying to be one thing. They're just trying to be the best uh, smart contract platform that there is. And, and they're small, right? And they're, those, they're relatively going to grow more uh, just, just given the, the, the time we are living in right now. Totally. And, and so you're sold on smart contracts. Um, do you think that, but you've just decided to build them on top of Bitcoin than Ethereum. So the critique of Ethereum is that they're trying to do two, two things. Do, do you think it's okay to do two things, but just Bitcoin has a better you know, potential to do two things? Do you think Bitcoin also has the potential to be the smart contract platform? Or how do you, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, so I think they, the uh, approach that Stacks has in some ways is actually very, very simple, right? The difference is actually very simple at a high level. All that we are saying is, so Ethereum is doing everything at one layer, right? Ethereum, the base layer, is trying to be money and has the smart contract platform. And we're noticing that because of scalability limitations, most of the computations are already moving to L2s, right? So there are so many projects like Arbitrum, Optimism, and, and, and some of the ZK uh, work that is coming up and all of that. So you're already seeing that maybe most of the smart contract functionality is going to happen at a different layer anyway, even on Ethereum. So what we are saying on the Bitcoin side is just let's just try to separate out these layers more cleanly so that the Bitcoin-based layer is the money layer. It is very simple, very durable. It is not going to change and we are okay with it. And then there is a more experimental layer that has smart contracts, which is completely separate, right? So if I need to go, like if developers are asking for certain features and Stacks needs to upgrade, upgrading Stacks relative to Bitcoin is a lot easier, right? I think in the, in the community, uh, there are discussions about doing an upgrade every six months or so, like having a kid itself, like just pushing upward. Bitcoin doesn't upgrade every like five years or so, right? So there's a huge difference between the two things. And I, I think that two-layer design uh, in many cases, like logically just makes sense. Like you just separate the concerns, like here's the money layer. And there might be many users who are only interested in the money aspect, right? They don't, they can just ignore stacks. They're like, I'm not a smart contract user. I have nothing to do with this. They can just ignore it. Then they can keep keep using the money layer. But there are people who are interested in smart contracts, and they can they can use Stacks. And then Stacks has access to the to the five hundred billion dollar capital that Bitcoin has, right? So you can actually make that capital productive, which is the thing that I think is probably the biggest criticism of Bitcoin. That right now, Bitcoin is effectively like it's not productive capital. It's just money that's just sitting there, right? Like I, I was describing this to people that uh, if you download a Bitcoin wallet, there are basically two things that you can do with it. One is you can send a transfer. So you're transferring Bitcoin to somebody. And the second thing is do nothing, right? So you just hold. And I think that is, that is the criticism that we see of Bitcoin in the Ethereum community, that what do you even do, do with your Bitcoin, right? Like these people are basically just sitting on, on, on coins and just talking on Twitter and, you know, who's building here. And I think those, there, there, there are valid arguments in that criticism that I do think that there's a big market uh, applications that can make Bitcoin productive, that can, you can have build an entire financial economy around Bitcoin. And that's the work that, that that we are trying to do. And we admit that 
the developer ecosystem around Ethereum is a lot bigger right now uh, compared to Bitcoin. But I think those things can change. It's it's very very early days. Yeah, totally. When you say Bitcoin is winning as money, can you say more about what you mean by by that? And and what would need like what is the criteria by which you are deciding that such that you know what would need to change for for that to to change? Yeah, I think I think it's a great question, right? So. Uh, first thing is, you know, just uh, adoption in the real world, right? If you look at uh, the El Salvador news, where, you know, there is a sovereign country that is saying Bitcoin is legal tender. Like once, you know, someone um, does that and they have a cryptocurrency that is legal tender, there's very little incentive to do that for another cryptocurrency. Like they've already done it and it's hard and so on. And then there are network effects in it, right? So El Salvador was just the first one. Now, there are others that are that are behind them. Similarly, I think Bitcoin being kind of like the first asset and being kind of like the more stable, time-tested asset is the thing that even public companies might be comfortable putting on their balance sheets as a, as a hedge against inflation, for example. Right. So that those things are happening. I think those network effects are very, very strong. But even, even I think at the technology level, the biggest kind of like difference between a system like Bitcoin. And you know, fiat money, which is issued by governments, is that how much control do certain parties have on on the money supply, right? So if you're going for like really hard money, meaning that you know no one can change the supply, I think Bitcoin is by far the most resilient to that type of change, right? And it has to do with you know how how Bitcoin was started, uh, you know how many crypto projects are out there where the founder is. It basically, nobody knows who the founder was and the founder disappeared, but the project actually survived, right? Bitcoin is the most like grassroots type of a project I, and and where different kind of like organic community members have just taken on the role of like, hey, I'm going to market Bitcoin. I'm going to promote Bitcoin. I'm going to educate people about Bitcoin. So if you look at the Bitcoin community, I think it's the most kind of like grassroots type of diehard believers. Uh, they are the ones who are going to uh, go through like bear markets better than anybody else, right? Like other projects might actually take much bigger hits, but the amount of enthusiasm and true kind of like, you know, they believe in the mission of Bitcoin and they're they're here for a cause. I think Bitcoin by far wins there. And I think it's the, it's, even from a brand name perspective, like, you know, your grandmother might know about Bitcoin, might not know about some of the other cryptocurrencies, but Bitcoin is reaching, is kind of like crossing that chasm and reaching mainstream, that the, there's a brand recognition of like, okay, I know what Bitcoin is, and I think I think it's important, right? So you, you combine those factors, the decentralization aspect is probably the biggest one, right? Because the one property that you're looking for over here is like how decentralized a project is, how resilient it is to change. And we we know like, for example, in, in projects like, uh, like, like, let's say Solana, where there's one large company behind it, and the blockchain goes down uh, and people can very quickly coordinate to effectively do a hard fork of, of, of the system. And I think in Bitcoin, you can actually download software from like 2013 and run it, and it will sync to the current version of Bitcoin without any changes, right? So that type of durability that, look, if I'm keeping my money uh, in, 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 in the system, like a decade from now, I'll be able, the system will be there. Yeah, and it will look exactly like how how it looked before. And I think I think you just can't say that about about a, about a lot of other projects. 
that that makes a lot of sense. Let's we've alluded to a num- number of it now, but I want to summarize uh, or make sure we, we have understood the the, the main crux of, of the differences between sort of the Jack Dorsey view of the world, and of course he, he came out with sort of the his kind of Web five announcement la- last week, and the and the Chris Dixon view of the world. Like, what are the fundamental uh, d- disagreements b- between between those views? And, and maybe you're you're more you're if at all you differ at all from the Jack view. Yeah, so I think I think for certain things I I would be on the Jack Dorsey camp, and even even with the Chris Dixon view, right? Like if you look at some of the early blog posts from Chris Dixon, like I'm talking like 2013, 2014, you know, he understands Bitcoin as as money. Like he understands the Bitcoin's use case as uh, kind of kind of like a hard asset and hard to change and and so on. It, I think the reason why you will see Chris's fund more active on the Ethereum side or some other projects, they're just following the developers, right? In fact, like there's a lot of criticism of VCs, like in the Bitcoin community. Uh, my view is that VCs are basically doing what they've been doing for decades, right? Like they see a new technology, they want to back the best founders, and they're taking, typically you're taking the bet that, you know, this team is going to go out and create something very valuable. The investment instrument might look different, right? Like instead of equity in a company, uh, it's now these tokens. And the the thing that has really changed is that the market for these assets was regulated, and you would typically only the public would only get a chance to like buy when a company would IPO, right? And with these tokens, like there are a lot of kind of like shady characters who have showed up and they're basically creating these things and selling them directly to the retail markets. And there's a very strong negative reaction from the Bitcoin community about that, right? That's justifiable, but I don't think you can basically throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like there are founders who they don't care, like, you know, they, for in their mind, like they're raising capital, just like they would raise capital in a, in a, in a, in a pre uh, kind of like crypto environment. And then they're working hard to build something valuable, right? So you can't ignore those people. And I think there is a lot of talented people because of, because the Bitcoin ecosystem lacks certain functionality, it lacks smart contracts, actually, even on the developer tool side, the developer tooling isn't very polished. Right. And, and there are more developers currently working in Ethereum. It's just a fact. Like, you know, you can, you can look at industry reports coming uh, from Electric Capital, for example, where uh, th- there are a lot more developers in Ethereum. And even, even like some projects like Solana, they might now have more aggregate number of developers than the entire Bitcoin ecosystem. So I, I almost can see both sides where why, uh, like what, why Jack Dorsey is doing what, what he's doing and why you know, and recent Horowitz is doing what they're doing. And the reality is always somewhere in the middle, right? And I think in many ways, we're trying to be that bridge. We're saying that, look, we understand that the developer traction is low on the Bitcoin side. And it's because uh, certain basic things are missing, right? Like you, you need smart contracts, you need really good developer tooling, you need talent, you need capital. Let's try to bring all, all of those things to the Bitcoin ecosystem. And then I think people would realize that, oh, Bitcoin can be so much more than just money, right? It could be a settlement layer uh, for, 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 for a future for internet. And I think many decentralized applications could be, could be built around it. And this is where I think some of the uh, Bitcoin hardline thinking comes in, that uh, there is a tendency to support projects 
that don't require a token, right? So it's a little bit like, you know, these are typically people like, you know, I know Jack is, is technical, but in general, there are a lot of like non-technical people in, in Bitcoin who would be like, I would, I would use this uh, technology because it doesn't have any token. Well, you're effectively telling developers what tools are right for them and what tools are not right for them. And this is not how free markets work. People are going to go wherever is the right tool to solve the problem that they're trying to solve, right? And I think I can, I can, I can give my example. Like if you want to have a smart contract layer that is separate from Bitcoin, because you can't put all of this data in the Bitcoin layer, you can't modify Bitcoin itself because that, I think a lot of people will agree that yes, you don't want to modify Bitcoin, even in the Bitcoin community. But as soon as you start discussing that, hey, look, here's a separate layer, and this layer needs incentives for miners to actually operate it, right? And that's why there is a new gas token that is there to incentivize these miners so that they can keep this almost like smart contract data layer alive, right? And people kind of like hit a mental wall there, right? Because there is a hard technical requirement. And in the Ethereum world, like everyone will be very understanding. They're like, sure, you know, it makes sense. Just like you need to incentivize the Bitcoin layer, just like you need to incentivize the Ethereum layer, you need to incentivize the Stacks layer. So I think those are kind of like the trade-offs where it's a little bit of a purist mentality sometimes uh, on, on, in the Bitcoin community that instead of using the best tools for the job, they're looking to design their tools to avoid a new token, right? So it's not that they're not solving the problem of what's the best developer platform we can build for developers. They're solving a problem. What is the developer platform that we can build that does not have a token? That's really interesting. I've heard the theory that there's something in the Bitcoin community where a certain group of kind of more aggressive people have gotten a lot of sway and it's made the community just a bit more aggressive. And, and it, I feel like one of the things Web3, the term actually did, is create more of a schism between the Bitcoin community and uh, sort of, you know, the, the rest of the crypto community, whereas yeah. before they were all lumped into the same same thing. It, it, is, is that your read of the history as well? Or how do you sort of think about how that came to be where the Bitcoin community started to be more? And what I wonder, Amanib, is um, if that will affect kind of institutional uh, investment, like if, you know, I could see Ethereum being more ESG, for example, like that that yeah. kind of uh, aesthetic, and will that affect institutional adoption? Yeah, so I think I think it's a, it's a great question, and I think that the the dynamic there is actually very very complex, right? There are several actors and several reasons. Maybe it's worth like uh, digging into them a little bit because I, I do think I have a unique vantage point, given that I've just been in the Bitcoin community for for so long. Actually, a funny thing is that. I would be called a Bitcoin maximalist by a lot of people in Ethereum. And I would be told to go join the Ethereum community by a lot of the Bitcoin hardliners, right? So <laughs> it's literally like, you know, there are people yelling at you from two different yeah. sides. And I, I, I would humbly say that maybe I have a unique uh, point of view here. And what, what I have seen is that um, the... First of all, I do think that there is a use for that hardliner. Uh, we need to verify everything. We need to be skeptical of everything uh, in the community. For for it's kind of like the social defense layer for Bitcoin, 
right? So there's there's use for it. And that's why it becomes very hard to criticize those people, right? Because it's the same people who are going to jump in and basically block some sort of a technology upgrade that's happening on Bitcoin that is not thought through uh, deep enough, right? So they're just imagine like, you know, people who, who might wear like tinfoil hats, right? And they're like, I'm just very careful. Uh, this is like my money and don't mess with it and, and don't make like changes that, that can have a negative impact. And that's the resilience. That's the, the social layer resilience that is going, that it is resulting in the decentralization of Bitcoin to the point where everyone understands that good luck making any changes to Bitcoin, good luck making any changes to the 21 million cap and so on. And that's that's a benefit. So I, I fully acknowledge that. And then I think it's the same people. It's a little bit like, you know, you train warriors, right? And sometimes there isn't a war happening, right? So there was a war happening in 2017 where there was almost like a civil war internally where, where people were trying to increase the Bitcoin block size. There was a fork of Bitcoin, like, and these people defended Bitcoin. And now the party that was on the other side is basically, you know, there's a very interesting stat that all of the forks of Bitcoin combined are worth less than 1% of Bitcoin, which basically means that Bitcoin has clearly won over all of the attempts over a decade of people trying to create a better version of Bitcoin. And some of the more influential people who went off and created like Bitcoin Cash and whatnot. So that's that's the benefit of the social layer. But once like, you know, there is no war happening, these people are, they're trained warriors, right? And they're going to turn their attention somewhere. And they uh, they do kind of like give developers in Bitcoin a very hard time. They are constantly kind of like have uh, things to say about everything else that's not Bitcoin, right? And the, and the interesting dynamic over there is because of the open free nature of the markets, if you call everything that's not Bitcoin a scam, as soon as there is an actual scam, you will be right, right? And there are, in fact, like actual scams out there. So they actually get vindicated over and over again, right? So when when the Luna collapse happened, right? It's a little bit like, look, here are the people who are telling you that this thing is risky. You should have only bought Bitcoin. And and every cycle I've seen this. So for, for I think the first time I started noticing that, you know, uh, the hardliners are kind of like becoming more dominant in the Bitcoin community was around 2017. And it's it's when a lot of kind of like these new products were coming in, starting new tokens, and then everything crashed. Every crash actually increases the strength of this community because people who like imagine like everyone who loses money, like there are only very few people who actually make money, right? Like traders, some some good, really good traders would make money, or people who are very disciplined would make money. A lot of people actually lose money uh, in in these bull runs and and the and the crashes that happen. A lot of those folks, it's a little bit like. It, they join the religion of Bitcoin after that, right? So they are the new recruiters. And in many ways, like it makes sense. Like uh, back even in 2013, the advice that I would give to my friends and family, if they would ask me about crypto was like, look, if you're thinking about putting some money here, A, don't put more than you can afford to lose. But the safest thing you can do is just buy Bitcoin. And the interesting thing is that advice is absolutely true today. Uh, as as true as it was in 2013, right? Because you are getting exposure to an entire industry that is going to rise and fall with Bitcoin. Maybe some projects will go up more uh, against Bitcoin during a bull market, but they're going to crash more when when the market kind of like turns. So you're way better off just by getting exposure with the safest asset uh, and just do that, right? So 
So I think that's where they recruit like more people and, and their uh, relative kind of like importance and power actually grows once, once you see a bear market. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if that happens again, right? And, and I, I do think that in, in any kind of like, if you study any kind of like tribe, uh, especially because of social media, like if you are um, very loud and very vocal and very controversial, you'll basically get more followers. Right, so those voices are actually getting stronger, and I think this yeah. is something that we we will we will kind of like have to live with. And a lot of folks like who are actual OG Bitcoiners who are actually much more moderate, much more open to innovation and new ideas, and so on. Even they've been kind of like you know, uh, <laughs> kind of criticized in the in the in the new Bitcoin community. Right, like this is not the original Bitcoin community. And what we are doing now is that we are basically trying to have a revival of Bitcoin builders culture. That I think as a subset of the larger Bitcoin community, and not everyone who's in Bitcoin is like that, right? It's like there is a subset that is very loud, that is very vocal, they do serve a purpose. So you can't can't like say that hey, they shouldn't exist. Uh, and I think we will just need to evolve as a larger ecosystem. And my hope is that as the Bitcoin community just keeps on becoming bigger and bigger, uh, like just like you would expect, like more moderate people on the planet in general than people who are kind of like extreme and have radical views in either direction. I think things things would likely uh, become more moderate over, over the long term. Well, that, that, that's well put. So I want to summarize. So my understanding is that you were building on, on Bitcoin instead of Ethereum because you believe the the, the base layer of Ethereum is, is, is way too complicated or rel- relative to Bitcoin. And that means, you know, Bitcoin is... is is more decentralized, obviously, and, and that means that it, that Ethereum is not as secure. Is, is it largely a security argument, or what, what's sort of the crux of why you prefer building Bitcoin to Ethereum? Yeah, I think uh, let me let me divide that a little bit. Like the first thing is, I would say, if you just put on your founder's hat and you you say like, look, there is a market opportunity that not a lot of people are working on, right? And that market opportunity is that Bitcoin is a five hundred billion dollar asset and is completely passive. And, and you can just come in and you can make this capital productive. There is more Bitcoin uh, out there than Ethereum and others. And Ethereum already has a much more saturated market for developers, right? So the first thing is like pure logic, pure kind of like, you know, put on your founder's hat. This is a huge market for several reasons, maybe also because like, you know, bad tooling, but also community reaction. A lot of developers get yelled at, frankly, in the in the Bitcoin community versus having a very friendly, hey, we, we, we want... To, to attract as many developers and, and uh, encourage them to experiment however they want. It's a little bit like we want some developers who are who can pass the purity test, right? And, and they're only doing the, the things in a way that are acceptable uh, to at least like some, some radical portion of, of the community. So I think that's just an opportunity. That's a massive opportunity. And I think we, we can come and try to capitalize on it. That's one. On a more fundamental level, I think the question really boils down to what's going to win as money, right? So I actually think that Bitcoin uh, as money would can be worth a lot more, right? I think 10 trillion is just a gold market cap. I think it could be worth a lot more as a hard asset. And, and if your thesis is that it's basically, I think someone can have the thesis that the actual value is in the smart contracts. That would be the inverse thesis uh, from us, that the actual value is the smart contracts. And then whatever asset is being used as gas for the smart contracts 
will end up being internet money, right? That's the Ethereum thesis. That's why Ethereum is trying, trying, to, be, trying to be money. They're saying that with usage, and I think there's some truth to it, right? Like a lot of people who were buying NFTs in the last cycle, they were treating Ethereum as money, online money. They would just use Ethereum like that, right? So here's an interesting dynamic as well, uh, that Bitcoin is getting adopted in the real world more as money. Like for example, light, lightning payments getting adopted by McDonald's and Walmart and, and so on. And Ethereum is getting adopted more as money in the online world, like NFT marketplaces, right? Like DeFi uh, and so on, right? So that's the dynamic. And my, my thesis here is it's more important that Bitcoin is getting adopted as money in the, in the real world because the online stuff is still early and can change. So just like you know, Solana hopes that it can take over from Ethereum or Avalanche hopes that it can take over from Ethereum, we think that you take the largest asset and just start using that as money online. Right? So why can't NFTs trade against Bitcoin? Why can't you know, Bitcoin be deployed uh, as, as collateral for, for issuing a stablecoin? And, and so on, right? So that's 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 kind of like the fundamental thesis, and and if you if you're right there, right? So the the thing about this is a contrarian thesis right now. So you need to be contrarian and right. I think if you're right there, that's that's like that's the jackpot, right? Like we we were contrarian and we were actually doing something that not a lot of people were doing in the industry, and then we ended up being right. But that is the core thesis. If that thesis is wrong, in the sense that money. Uh, from cryptocurrencies is actually going to evolve from a usage perspective of smart contracts, then Ethereum has a massive, massive lead. And I think all, all the other players are basically trying to cash up to that. Yeah. And and when they say ultrasound money, what, what do they even mean? Like, let's flesh out a future world in which one in which Bitcoin wins and, you know, becomes, you know, money, as you say, and another in which Ethereum wins. How could these two worlds play out? Yeah, I think the way uh, this plays out, I think, and then I think there's a third scenario as well that they both win as in their in their in their respective categories, right? So, so let's let's say that you know the analogy of the internet holds here, where in the early days there were many different types of networks, and then you know what we call the internet today came around and it won, and it actually won because it was very very simple at the base layer. Right, so TCP/IP is a very simple protocol. It just does one thing, literally one thing. It takes packets from one place and delivers it in another place. It doesn't even know what those packets are. Right, and there were other types of networks who had more intelligence baked in at the at, at that layer. Right, so they actually could do more complex and interesting things at, at that layer, and they never took off. And I think part of my thesis around the, why Bitcoin is going to win is motivated by that those historical lessons as well. That typically simple base layers tend tend to be the ones that 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 kind of like win. So in that world, you will see like tons of stuff built on top of Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin is the largest asset and something like Stacks is the largest smart contract platform, right? And then there are all sorts of things built on top of Bitcoin. There's a very, very healthy kind of like ecosystem. So Bitcoin, I'm not saying that other chains won't exist, but it'll be like the center of gravity uh, is Bitcoin like that's it's the it's a it's the world reserve currency. A lot of kind of like applications like settle information uh, eventually on Bitcoin. So, so people would like for example, if I'm selling you an NFT, you would go and try to verify that this is this NFT actually mine on the Bitcoin blockchain. And if something is not settled on Bitcoin, 
it would be very much like I don't trust this information because it's not settled on Bitcoin. So it's the ultimate kind of like source of truth uh, for for the entire world, right? Uh, and that's that, that's the Bitcoin world. And I think on the on the Ethereum side, it's effectively uh, what I mentioned earlier that the smart contracts ended up end up being the much bigger market, right? So it's possible that Bitcoin takes digital gold as like a ten trillion asset or something, but the market for a global trustless a computing platform turns out to be a hundred trillion market or something like that. So that, there was just a lot more there, and and then the the asset that is native uh, over there is the thing that you know, like like you know, kids who are like three four years old right now, like what what is going to be the most natural thing for them when they are teenagers? Like I think that's the question. Right. Uh, just like there were people who just grew up with the internet, they would never even think that there were other designs uh, that were competing like at some point. So I think the, the, the people who are two, three year olds today, like when they're teenagers, there will be some sort of a native internet currency. And maybe there are multiple ones, but I think what would be the largest one is the question. And I think I think in, in, the, in that world, because Ethereum is where all the applications went, uh, in, in the Ethereum, when it will look like ETH is something that is very native to them, and that's the thing that they use. And it could be it could be something else as well, right? Like uh, that's that's the that's the other question that I think about a lot. That which out of these two have a bigger moat, right? Like, is it do, do smart contract platforms have a bigger moat, or is a money money layer is something that has a bigger and again, my, I, I gravitate towards the, the money there actually has a much bigger mode than smart contract platforms. Yeah, it's interesting. Someone like, you know, Kyle Samani came on the podcast recently. And what he was saying is that um, he was sort of advocating for more of the progressive decentralization element that, hey, we're still figuring out what is the perfect design. And he thinks Solana is experimenting the fastest and they're going to figure it out and then lock it in and and and, and decentralize and it's not that one thing has to be, be decentralized from the get-go, um, but that you can figure out the, sort of the, the perfect design. Is there any merit to, to that view in your view? I think, I think there is some merit, right? Like it's a, it's a little bit like, even if you look at how Bitcoin launched, like really, really early days when there were like five people on the network, it was more centralized, right? And they could coordinate more with each other and they, they could experiment. So even you could argue that Bitcoin has decentralized more over, over time. I do think that some of these things about, uh, I'll, I'll bring up two things. One thing is that I think being able to experiment a lot is a really good property to have for a smart contract platform. It is not a good property to have for a money layer, right? I think for a money layer, and that's where the fundamental tension is, for a money layer, what people want to know is that this thing is not going to change. Like it's like, for example, Bitcoin is like, the story is so simple. 21 million Bitcoin, never going to change, right? Ethereum is actually experimenting a lot. They're burning their supply. They're introducing different issuance. They're doing a lot of experimentation to then say that, hey, look, this thing is actually going to be deflationary over time. It's a very intellectually interesting thing to play with. The argument I would make is that to an ordinary person on the planet, simple, is, simple and durable is actually way better. Right. Whereas like, hey, 21 million, nothing else is ever going to happen. You don't even have to think about it. Right. Uh, experimentation is good for a developer platform. Right? So Solana as a developer platform, if they're experimenting a lot and they can decentralize down the road, I think that could work as a developer platform. 
and then everything is a spectrum, right? The issue is, were you too much on the centralization side to the extent that uh, people like serious builders who care about decentralization and who, who think that the main value prop here is actually decentralization, you are basically just keeping them out, right? And, and the type of people that you're attracting are the folks who are maybe more interested in the money during a bull cycle, right? Than, than actual true decentralization and building something like foundational that can like, last for decades. Yeah. Speaking of sort of uh, sentiment, um, let's close by talking about the, the markets. So we're, we're talking in mid-June, uh, the markets are collapsing, uh, you know, not, not just crypto, but, but all, all markets, you know, ironically, the best place is in cash, as some people are saying, even though inflation is over 8%. Um, and so a, a couple of questions. One is, how do you make sense of, of what's happening now? You've been through a few cycles. You know, one of the hopes for Bitcoin was that it was going to be a, a hedge uh, against inflation. And, and maybe it will be in the future, but it, it isn't currently today. I'm curious how you think about that. And then also you mentioned Bitcoin is still the, the best bet. Some people might say, hey, what about something like Coinbase or, or something else that represents kind of a basket of different um, currencies, just because it's not clear that, that, that Bitcoin is the, is, is the winner, as we've been talking about. Uh, what, are, what are some of your thoughts on, on some of these high-level questions? Yeah, so I think for the markets, I would say um, that in some ways, like crypto is just following the cycles that it does right it's this is the time you know if you if you look at traditionally how long the bull markets last like i was doing a similar analysis back in march and even though i felt that we haven't really seen a blowout top of the market uh, i just felt like the time has expired right like historically the bull markets last for this long and in so part part of it is like hey it feels familiar yes we have seen this story before but I definitely think like there are some new elements as well like for example uh, this time the bear market uh, coincides with a global crash and potentially a recession right so I don't think we've seen that before that it's like you're getting hit from two sides right so so what the new dynamic would be we don't know and I also think that uh, in terms of uh, like Bitcoin, I think it's again it's it's the it's the simplest thing, right? Like where people like imagine early investors in Coinbase. I think Barry Silbert was doing some calculation when Coinbase IPO'd, and this is at the high level, right? Like not not the Coinbase price today. And he did some calculation and basically said that hey, if I would have held Bitcoin, I would have made slightly more money. Like not a lot of more money, but slightly more money. Just buying Bitcoin would have been would have been the best thing, obviously. There's a different argument, like back in the day, the industry was so small that Coinbase actually needed capital and Coinbase has created a lot of value in the industry. So you need investments in, in these companies. But from a purely investment perspective, I think it's actually very, very hard to, to, to beat Bitcoin. Uh, also, not just hard in the sense of it's hard relative to how much risk you're willing to take. Right. So it's the least risky, best performing asset in, in the crypto industry, like by far. And I think other, unless you are a very sophisticated fund who can actually do a deep dive on a lot of complicated protocols and can build out models and hedge yourself and, and so on, like if you're willing to do like a lot of work, uh, you're way better off, like, you know, just, just, just buying Bitcoin and forgetting. And so maybe in, in words of uh, closing for, you know, it's a lot of people's first uh, bear market, um, been through a few, any, uh, any advice for people in terms of how to stay sane or or how they should act or what they should expect? Yeah, I think I think uh, bear markets are the hardest on people when it's the first 
time that they're experiencing it. Because the first time is the, is the time when you're actually down in dollar terms. So it feels like you've actually lost money, right? Uh, so it, it's a little bit like you, you can talk to the OGs, so to speak, but they're not in the same boat as you, right? Like their, their cost average is a lot lower for somebody who got in two cycles before or even one cycle before, right? So first of all, we need to acknowledge that the people who are hit the most are the ones who uh, just joined. And it could be more than investments as well. Like you just decided to join a crypto startup and you had a stable job. And now suddenly that startup is having layoffs or you 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 feel like you know you've made the wrong move or, or something like that so i think that's that's we need to acknowledge that like it, it, it's a it's a hard time for a lot of people out there but that said there's no guarantee that these markets are going to come back but i can tell you this much that bitcoin is either worth a lot or it's worth nothing like it's not going to just hover around in this category it's it's a technology right like either it's going to die off uh, because it didn't get adoption or it is going to get adoption, like mainstream adoption. And on the adoption curve, we are very, very early right now, right? So just from, from that uh, perspective, and, and at least we have some historical data. We have seen that this is how these markets work. They go down, they recover in roughly two to three years. And, and I think you will notice that uh, people who stick around during a bear market, it's a, it's a great filter, right? Like it's basically... Uh, the mercenaries go away and the mission-driven people who are intellectually interested in these things, they kind of like stay. It's actually like a great time if you're a builder, if you truly believe in these things, like the level of like noise and distractions just goes down uh, and, and you're, you, you feel like you can actually focus on like work uh, and get a lot done. And those are the people that always get rewarded, right? Like if Solana was the best performing asset last uh, bull market, you should talk to the founders of Solana and they will tell you that they started <laughs> in 2018 in the bear market and people were barely giving them money uh, to even get started. And then they, they, uh, they, were, they were forged in the bear market. And I, I, I have similar experiences as well. So I think any, anyone uh, who looks like a successful person uh, in crypto, like they have gone through these bear markets and they have actually built through them. Yeah, that's an inspiring way to close. For, for builders who, who want to learn more about Stacks, wh where should they go? Yeah, so I think uh, people can find more information on Stacks uh, at stacks.co, that's .co. And uh, I'm fairly active on Twitter. I post about it all the time. And I am at Muneeb, uh, M-U-N-E-E-B, which is, which is my first name. Muneeb, this has been a fantastic episode. Thanks for coming to the podcast. Awesome. Thanks a lot for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.